patients with mast cell activation, they get worse with treatment. They can't tolerate the treatments. They get exacerbations of their symptoms when we start to try and give them binders and, and give them antioxidants like glutathione, you know, even putting people on phosphatidylcholine. When, when the standard treatments for uh, mold illness don't work right away, then I know we're dealing with mast cell activation. Have you ever heard of mast cell activation syndrome and wondered if it is the missing puzzle piece for you and your health? Or do you have mast cell activation syndrome and want to know what you can do about it? This is a very complicated topic, but today we are diving into mast cell activation syndrome, also known as MCAS, M-C-A-S, with one of the nation's experts on mast cell activation, Dr. Kelly McCann. I am Dr. Andrew Wong, co-founder of Capital Integrative Health. This is a podcast dedicated to transforming the consciousness around what it means to be healthy and understanding the root causes of both disease and wellness. Dr. McCann has been in private practice in Costa Mesa, California since 2008. She is certified by the Institute for Functional Medicine and also board certified in integrative medicine by the American Board of Physician Specialties. Dr. McCann also lectures internationally on various topics, including mold and mycotoxin illness, Lyme and other chronic infections, mast cell activation syndrome and related conditions, and environmental medicine. And personally, she is one of my most favorite mentors. Join us for a conversation today with Dr. McCann about MCAS, how it intersects with mold toxicity and POTS, which is also known as paroxysmal orthostatic tachycardic syndrome, and what you can do to support your health. Thank you so much, Dr. McCann, for coming on to our podcast. We're so honored and delighted to have you here. Thank you, Dr. Wong. I'm very happy to be here. So uh, also, um, you know, just on a personal note, uh, Dr. McCann's been a mentor of mine for a while. Really, a lot of what I've learned in integrative functional medicine, I've learned from Kelly. So I really want to thank you for that. You're welcome. My pleasure. And, you know, as you see in your clinic as well, we have a lot of patients, a lot of people in the community even that aren't in our clinic that have a lot of complex chronic illnesses, you know, health challenges, of course. We know that, you know, the puzzle pieces of people's health is kind of like, it's not a, it's not a checkerboard, right? It's not a, or we could say a two-dimensional di- two puzzle. It's more like a Rubik's Cube, you know, in some Absolutely. ways. And I was never very good at Rubik's Cubes, but fortunately, the human body seems to be a little bit easier for for me to put together than a Rubik's Cube. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, there are people that are very uh, talented with Rubik's Cubes. There's actually a a, uh, Netflix series called Cubed, where these world champions uh, can do Rubik's Cubes in like five to six seconds, actually, which is amazing. (laughs) They tend to be good at math and like they tend to be very much, you know, into that. But uh, today we want to talk about one piece of the of the puzzle of the Rubik's cube, which is mast cell activation syndrome. And we'd like to talk about mast cells first, what they what they are, what MCAS is, and uh, and then we'll kind of go from there and maybe explore other parts of that Rubik's cube and how how that's kind of related to the other parts. Sure, it's one of my favorite topics, so I'm happy to talk about it. Um, so mast cells are part of our immune system, and it turns out that they are actually derived from some of our red blood cells. Um, so it's a hematopoietic stem cell line that 
then goes to the myeloid stem cell line, which also is where we get our platelets, our red blood cells, and then many of our white blood cells with the exception of the lymphocytes. <clears throat> and those mast cells are actually um, pretty small in number, but very, very important for our immune system defenses. They tend to um, grow up in the bone marrow and then move to the um, the areas of interface between our cells and the outside world. So they live uh, at the border of our mucous membranes in our upper respiratory tract, in our lungs. They line our entire gastrointestinal system. They also tend to be in our brain and then on our skin. Um, and so <clears throat> um, because they are lining uh, the areas of entry point for our body, they, it's their job to be constantly surveilling for foreign invaders. And so um, what happens with MCAS is that these immune system cells get a little, they get dysfunctional, they get hyper-responsive, they start to perceive threats where there may not be any, um, even though there may have been an initial threat that was a true threat like a, an infection or a toxin, now they've gotten triggered and they are reacting to all sorts of things. Um, and as a result, causing a lot of symptoms in patients. So there's a lot that we can go into with that. Um, yes, sir. <laughs> I, think, I think the first thing that came to mind when you're talking about the different organs where the mast cells concentrate, you know, the gut, the, gut, the lungs, the sinuses. When you said brain, I kind of paused because I was like, wow, you know, brain's an internal organ. Why would that be a mast cell site? Is it basically because that's another entry point with the blood-brain barrier and things like that? or? You know what? I haven't actually looked at that specifically to figure out if if they're there because of protecting the blood-brain barrier. Um, but we do know that when patients have mast cell activation symptoms, they get a lot of neurological and cognitive symptoms too. So some of the the symptoms can be depression, anxiety, mood changes, irritability, anger, headaches. Um, and I was just looking at a paper where it does tend to be that there's this uh, re relationship between the gut and the brain with regard to mast cells too. So you've got a lot of mast cells in the gastrointestinal tract and then the GI tract is communicating back and forth between via the vagus nerve to the central nervous system. And so there's crosstalk there too. Um, but that's a good question. I'll have to investigate uh, why we have a lot of mast cells or some mast cells in our brains. Thank you. And, and just the symptoms you listed, and we know there's a lot of symptoms with mast cells with you know anxiety, depression, and then on the other end, gut issues. How do people know, like listeners out there, if they have these type of symptoms, if it's something else that's causing the anxiety, depression, the irritable bowel, you know, et cetera, et cetera, or if it's related to mast cell? It's a good question and it is hard. I mean, I think this is part of the science of, med of the, the art of medicine. You know, the, I, there are two different consensus in terms of diagnostic criteria. There is the, what, what on my side, we call the consensus one um, 
diagnostic criteria for mast cell activation. And typically these are going to be um, the more conventional allergists and they recognize anaphylaxis and some of the allergy type symptoms as symptomatology related to mast cells. But then they have this very strange, what I perceive to be very strange diagnostic criteria where they only look at tryptase and they say, if tryptase is 20% plus two nanograms per milliliter greater during a flare than at a normal time frame, that is the criteria. So their criteria is very rigid. Um, and then, you know, patients have to respond to appropriate treatments. <clears throat> so that's consensus one um, that was originally delineated by an allergist named Valent and his uh, cohort of folks in 2010. Uh, soon after that, Dr. Lawrence Afrin and his colleagues put out a different um, statement. Uh, which we've now decided to call consensus two. And it has a lot broader uh, diagnostic criteria, which means that patients who are suffering from these unusual symptoms are much more likely to be um, able to get a diagnosis and to have appropriate treatment from, from uh, practitioners who understand that mast cell activation can be a very broad spectrum of symptoms and may or may not even have um, biochemical evidence in labs because the truth is mast cells produce these chemicals we call mediators and there are hundreds if not thousands of mediators that are produced by mast cells and in commercial labs what we have available now we can test for maybe six or seven, maybe eight of these markers. So the likelihood that somebody could have mast cell activation with lots of symptoms and still get a biochemical lab value that is positive, no, it's it's not 100%. <laughs> Would you say that mast cell diagnosis is kind of like finding a needle in a haystack, but then not even realizing there might be six or seven different haystacks? We're looking at like one haystack, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is yeah. complicated. So, you know, in, in order to get back to your question, how does a, how does a patient know that they might have mass activation? Um, it is, you know, probably the easiest way to say it is it's inflammation that might be uh, in multiple systems of the body. Um, and Typical symptoms could be things like fatigue, allergy symptoms, irritable bowel symptoms. People can get palpitations, chest pain. They can get neurological symptoms like we talked about with the anxiety, depression, migraines, et cetera. Um, they can have shortness of breath and lung symptoms, asthma symptoms, um, but also Again, think about inflammation in other parts of the body. So interstitial cystitis, which is bladder irritation, um, any sort of fibromyalgia type symptoms, uh, joint pain, headaches. Um, and then for women, they can have menstrual irregularities, um, heavy periods, painful periods. Um, and then um, autonomic nervous system dysfunction. So the autonomic nervous system, which is 
um, as you know, part of the nervous system that enables us to breathe and our hearts to pump and our uh, gastrointestinal system to do its job without us having to think about it. Um, that system is often impacted either by mast cell activation or as its own separate entity, which we can talk about. Wow. Wow. That's a whole nother, uh, that Rubik's cube just opened up a new rabbit hole. I think, <laughs> oh, yes. well let's, let's dive into a couple of small rabbit holes. I think there won't be too deep. We can still get out of them here, but, um, okay. so, okay. um, one thing is, you know, in terms of mast cells and you've explained really be beautifully here, you know, what they are, how they work in the system. Um, you know, what symptoms might be, uh, you know, sort of diagnostic based on criteria two or consensus two, like you said, a, how common is it for people to have, have there been studies on consensus two mast cell activation? Um, but also if people, if we think about it from an integrative functional naturopathic perspective, right. In terms of root cause, you know, and chronic disease often being caused by inflammation. And we know that inflammation usually doesn't silo in one organ, right? It always kind of right. spread, you know, brain, gut, hormone system, um, different, different tissues in the body. Wouldn't all chronic inflammation in a way be potentially influenced by mast cell activation? P potentially. I mean, um, yeah. it does get, it does get a little, uh, confusing, but I, I think that one of the things that I will say is, um, it does appear that about 17% of the general population has mast cell activation. You said 17%? 17%. That is a huge number. Exactly. That is a huge number wow. um, of people. And this the history is really, really important. So many of these people who develop mast cell activation will be allergic kind of kids. They might have food sensitivities and food allergies. They might have environmental allergies as kids. And typically if you listen to the story and take the time or for you know those patients who are listening, think about your own history and uh, you may see that there's um, periods of waxing and waning and increased exacerbations of symptoms over the years. So, you know, I was an allergic kid. I had, you know, runny nose and allergies and stuff like that in my teenage years. Um, and it wasn't until later that the, the mold exposure and the, the Lyme disease and all of those things started manifesting in gastrointestinal issues and hives and things like that. So, you know, if I look at my own life, I can see the progression from being, I would never would, would have been diagnosed with mast cell activation as a teenager, but you know, now in my late forties, early fifties, I have a lot more symptoms. Um, and so I think that that's part of it too, is that there's this stepwise progression that happens mostly because our mast cells are getting triggered by a variety of different things like chronic infections, like mold exposure, like environmental toxicants, which is their job. Um, and we don't know all the genetics. Um, in fact, mast cell activation seems to be more related with um, kit genes that have what are called somatic mutations. So we're not all born with mast cell activation. Uh, I think the genes take hits over time. 
that start to change the functionality of those mast cells, um, <clears throat> getting them to be more and more hyper responsive. Um, so yeah, I kind of, I kind of, when you were saying that, I was imagining if someone was like hitting my shoulder, right, right, like this, you know. And the first few times it was just like a little annoying. But then after a while, it's like, oh, my shoulder's starting to hurt. And it starts to throb and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it works something like that. Something like, you know, the mast cells are getting more sensitized over time. Do you feel like as a population, are we getting more sensitized in general by the global hits of not only infections, but, you know, global toxicity and all these different things, the pesticides, all that? Absolutely. Um, I think... Unfortunately, our health is going to continue to be challenged because of so many environmental exposures that we have, um, whether the, that's glyphosate or um, you know other pesticides, et cetera, et cetera. That that's a whole topic. <laughs> that's a whole other topic. Yes. So there's a lot of connections. So we might want to explore the Rubik's cube a little bit. And then I think towards the end, we may want to talk about, you know, as mast cells, we know that, you know, mast cells are needed for defense system, needed for the immune system to sound that red, red, red alert on, hey, let's yes. rev up that immune system. Let's, let's defend and protect, you know, our bodies. But then, you know, there's that balance point, it sounds like, is what you're saying, Dr. Buchanan. You know, there's a point at which they need to be revved up, but not too much, you know, so that it causes things like autoimmunity or POTS or, you know, these type of things or, you know, one of the contributors to POTS maybe. So I guess let's yeah. talk about some of the connections first and then we'll go into later how to maybe desensitize those mast cells or kind of calm them down, have them take a little bit of a chill pill, if you will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, let's talk about uh, some of, I know your favorite topics. Uh, what are the connections between mast cell activation syndrome and and POTS, uh, what is POTS? And I think that, you know, we can talk about that first. Sure, so POTS stands for postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. <clears throat> um, that's why we call it POTS, because that's quite a mouthful. And essentially what that means is when somebody goes from lying to standing, their heart rate increases in an abnormal way. You know, we really shouldn't have a big jump in our heart rate, um, but with patients who have this um, POTS syndrome, their heart rates can jump 30 or 40 beats. The younger they are, the more they have to have the 40 beat per minute increase. Um, so that's the clinical definition of POTS. Now, POTS is only one of a variety of different kinds of dysautonomic conditions. Uh, another fairly common one is orthostatic hypotension, where the blood pressure drops, um, systolics 20 beats or diastolic 10 beats, um, 10 points um, when a person goes from lying to standing up. Um, but the POTS tends to be much more common with mast cell activation. Um, I did a quick literature search in preparation and <clears throat> there was one study in allergy and asthma um, just last year where they did a chart review of like 200 different charts, looking at patients who had POTS and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is something else we can talk about. But 31% of those um, patients who had the diagnosis of POTS and EDS 
also had symptoms consistent with mast cell activation and at least one biochemical marker. Um, so there is some overlap there. Um, there was another um, allergist, probably consensus one author who uh, wrote an article that completely denied the relationship. Of course, we're going to get um, lots of varying opinions in the medical literature. Um, but then there was another one that came out in 2021, uh, an American Journal of the, uh, Journal of American Heart Association, actually, where 42% of the patients with POTS um, had mast cell activation symptoms. So, you know, somewhere between 30 and 40% overlap, which is pretty huge. Um, some of the other studies that looked more like 60% overlap. Um, so there, again, in the consensus two community, we start to talk about these conditions as, um, absolutely being related. In fact, we have a, a um, a name for them called pentad patients, or even you know pentad plus patients, where they have mast cell activation, dysautonomia, um, Ehlers-Danlos hypermobility syndrome, autoimmune conditions, and then often gastroparesis too. Um, and then you can throw in chronic Lyme, chronic mold, uh, SIBO symptoms, and these patients are the patients that are walking through our doors. <laughs> yes, yes. So thank you for that uh, tour de force of all the genetic associations there. I wanted to just take a little bit of a sidebar since we're both trained in the traditional medicine at first and then integrative functional. And, you know, I think in traditional medicine, we aren't really taught to think beyond the silos, you know? I mean, that's just one of those challenges that we see with why isn't traditional medicine as good or effective as we would like to, you know, when we use that hat right. uh, at, at really dealing with chronic issues because it, it wasn't really that we got that training and, and that type of medicine when we're, when we need to connect the dots, which you need to, I think, in complex chronic illness. Absolutely. We need to connect the dots. And, you know, I don't recall, of course, my lenses were different then, but, you know, in, in the, late 90s, early 2000s, patients didn't look like this. They weren't that complicated, um, not in general. Um, you know, if somebody had an autoimmune condition, then, you know, you would see the autoimmune condition, but they didn't tend to have all of these other symptoms. Um, I mean, even in the beginning of my practice, um, in the early 2000s, I don't recall the level of severity that patients have these days. Um, I don't know if that's your... Um, well, I kind of see it like the sea level rise, right? We are not going to know until it floods all the all the coastal towns, you know, I mean, yeah, I agree. It's, I, I don't know, because I think everything changes sometimes slowly or imperceptibly. And then it's like, oh, why are we seeing so many people? But um, we, we do feel like we're seeing sicker patients now, it, it seems. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. I think just from treating people over the years. Um, but then the other thing is, you know, all the lab companies are revising the ranges of health downward to fit an average in other words you know <laughs> testosterone or you know it's like it's right. normal but was well, it normal 20 right. years ago 30 years ago it was low so you know who's to say um you know ranges are being revised downward in order to fit 
normality, even though that's not healthy. Right. Yes. This have, is another piece. So, so I think if we're all feeling terrible and have multi-complex chronic illness or at least chronic inflammation, but we're all looking at each other saying, Hey, how are you feeling? Right. If I, if I go down the hall and say, Hey Kelly, you know, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I'm feeling fine. Cause that's socially acceptable, right? That's what we say to each other when we're right. talking on a superficial level. But if we're all kind of feeling that way and that's the baseline and all of our friends and family are like that, then, then that's normal, but it's not necessarily healthy. Oh. So I think our, our, our goalposts may have changed too. And it's good to probably remember where we were so yeah. we can maybe get back to that if possible. So, yeah, that's very true. Yes. So let's talk about another big topic. I think we're almost covering multiple things here, but um, let's talk about mold and, and mast cell. W what is that connection like there? Um, does mold trigger mast cell? Does, does mast cell then trigger more susceptibility to mold? What's that relationship? So absolutely, I've seen again and again and again, mold trigger mast cell activation, which makes sense because that's what the mast cells are designed to do. They're designed to perceive a threat and mold and in particular mold toxins cause all sorts of havoc, increase oxidative stress in the body. And you can have many, many symptoms from mold and, and mycotoxin exposures alone that don't necessarily have to be mast cell activation. Um, but it, I, think, I think the difference would be you know, the patients who just have mold exposure tend to be able to tolerate the treatments, whereas patients with mast cell activation, they get worse with treatment. They can't tolerate the treatments. They get exacerbations of their symptoms when we start to try and give them binders and, and give them antioxidants like glutathione, you know, even putting people on phosphatidylcholine. When when the standard treatments for uh, mold illness don't work right away, then I know we're dealing with mast cell activation. Now, does mast cell activation make mold exposure, subsequent exposures worse? Sure, absolutely. I mean, these people get highly sensitized to the mold. Um, and so there's a lot of things that I do in my practice to really try and uh, reduce that reactivity uh, using different kinds of immunotherapy. For example, we can do immunotherapy to different molds. We can do immunotherapy like low-dose allergy therapy to foods and environmental things. Um, I haven't worked much with uh, low-dose immunotherapy like LDI via Ty Vincent, um, but that may be a possibility for some of these mast cell patients too. Yeah, definitely. I definitely want to get into that as well. <laughs> um, always more to learn, right? That's always, always more. To learn. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, I think for mold, I mean, this is something that I just want to point out as a as a primary care, you know, clinic, and also just in general, when you when you listen when you're listening to this, you know, who's listening to this out there, um, this is not something that most doctors, most practitioners are going to really be even thinking about. Is that is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, many of our conventional colleagues probably think I'm a little kooky because, you know, I talk about mold and how sick it makes people. But the truth is that it is 
it is out there and it is causing people to be sick. Um, and the proof is in getting people better. So, you know, I, you know, identify that mold is an issue, get them out of the moldy house, put them on a regimen. And when they get their lives back and they get their brains back, well, there's the answer. Um, so that's at a certain level, it doesn't matter to me if the conventional doctors don't believe me in the beginning. Um, but I think it's important for your listeners to understand that this is not something we were taught as you know, medical doctors, we didn't talk about mold um, in medical school residency, it wasn't part of our training. And so this is something that really only functional docs who have gone the extra step really know anything about. It kind of reminds me of those movies where there's like a town and it's on the outpost and there's like high walls and stuff. And there's probably like a lot of stuff outside. And so you don't, you don't want to go outside that wall because who knows what will happen, you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. So I think for us that have kind of been in both worlds and I think it just really goes back to, like you said, the patient results, right? We see that patient, there's no cuckoo clock behind them. You know, their symptoms are real. Their yes. improvement is real. And, and I think that's where even with functional medicine, the limitations of testing is because sometimes it detects it, but sometimes the patient is the be is their best lab test, you know, having Absolutely. the symptoms. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, lab tests are not perfect. Um, I tell this story of a husband and a wife whom I had as patients. Um, the wife was very sick, had chronic Lyme, lots of symptoms, neurological symptoms, depression. <clears throat> Occasionally she would get foot drop, um, chronic diarrhea, et cetera, et cetera. And she swore to me over and over again, no, I don't have mold. I don't have mold. No, we don't have mold. Until the hot water heater in the apartment was leaking and it rotted through and literally the hot water heater fell through into their kitchen. And there was black mold, stachybotrys everywhere. It just covered all of their belongings. <clears throat> and I had the husband do the real-time lab mycotoxin test and his test showed five to 10 times higher in the three mycotoxins that they were testing at the time, five to 10 times higher than the upper limit of normal. So huge, huge um, exposure. And the wife's test showed nothing. Wow. She was so sick. She couldn't mobilize any of the uh, Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, despite the same exact exposure as her husband. And so in some cases, um, like with that one, the patient, the person who is the sickest may not even be able to mobilize those mold toxins to get a test that's gonna help us and help the patient. Um, so sometimes I have to have the partner do a test too, or somebody else who's living in the house uh, to try and identify that mold is there, mold is the issue. So now same with heavy metals too. It sounds like heavy metals, probably chronic infections. We're really trying to find a needle in multiple haystacks, but the needle is moving too. You know, the needle, needle's trying to not be found in a way. Yes. Which, yeah. So with, with detox, particularly yeah. with metals, if, if they're incredibly toxic, they don't mobilize those metals and you have a mistaken impression that they don't have them when they might. Yeah. Very common. So let's get into some of the possible treatments. You know, someone's out there, they're itching all the time, you know, carotid urticaria. They might have all the symptoms you just named, joint pain, 
chronic pain elsewhere, fatigue, you know, brain fog, gut issues, allergies, multiple food sensitivities, sinus issues. You know, h- how do they get relief from this? Where do they where do they start with with you know with mast cell? Sure, good treatment. question. So some people can get benefit from avoiding certain kinds of foods, and so some foods are very high in histamine or will trigger a histamine response. Um, and so simply by changing the diet, avoiding things like um, avocados and eggplants, actually green beans, um, any sort of packaged food, processed food, lots of additives, um, uh, leftovers even <laughs> can trigger histamine responses in people. And so um, there are a whole bunch of low histamine diets out there. Um, I think Beth O'Hara does a great job on mast cell 360 with her uh, histamine, low histamine diet recommendations. So I do recommend checking out her website. Um, And then patients really need to start keeping a journal because even if um, they eat a low histamine diet or may or may not be reactive to all those histamine foods and vice versa. So that that's really an important place to start. Um, and then there are some supplements that they can try. Um, some of my favorites include quercetin. And quercetin is a mast cell stabilizing supplement that's available all over. And it's generally very safe and it will help with a little bit of COVID too. So why not? Um, the doses range from like 250 milligrams, um, you know, upwards of a thousand milligrams four times a day. So there's a lot of flexibility in the dose for quercetin. Um, there are some enzymes uh, that help break down histamine, such as DAO enzymes. So again, going back to the diet and the and the food, um, some people don't make enough. Uh, DAO enzymes to break down the histamine in the foods so they can take DAO enzymes before their meals to help with um, metabolism of histamine uh, while they're eating. Um, Let's see. So those are some of the the ones that I would suggest that are supplements. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I think first of all, we should say that, you know, it would be great if we could come up with a avocado that was low histamine. I think that would be <laughs> important for everyone. Yeah, that um, would be and then the other thing is that we know that histamine, right, can be a neurotransmitter. It's not a binary thing. You know how we always like inflammation, let's let's just kind of just let it, get rid of it all. just get rid of all of it. And then, you know, we don't have any immune system. So is, histamine is good for us in some ways, right? Some of some of it. Sure, of course. Just like mast cells are really important for our immune system. I mean, right. they're, they're our defense. It's the aberrant or, you know, hypersensitive mast cells that are a problem. And it's the overabundance of histamine that's a problem. And I have patients who have, so a normal histamine level in blood should be less than one. I have histamine, I have patients with histamine levels like two, five, 25. <laughs> 25 level histamine that person is really that's a lot of histamine that's a lot of histamines yeah yeah now now let's talk about root causes so we talked about i think before um that that you know most of the immune systems in your gut right isn't is in the gut how does gut health affect mast cells mast cell activation um 
Well, I mean, it depends. So somebody can have leaky gut and irritable bowel and SIBO and they don't have mast cell, but it can be a component as we're talking about in these you know, genetically susceptible, we don't understand the genes yet, person who has a lot of um, reactivity. So I, I find some of the biggest drivers of mast cell activation are really two things, predominantly mold exposure um, and uh, the infection Bartonella, maybe even more so than Lyme. Um, and those those things, including Lyme disease, impact the gut tremendously. It can cause disruption in the gut barrier. It can cause disruption in the gut microbiome. Um, you can get an overabundance of yeast and candida. You can get colonization with other funguses when you're mold exposed. Um, and so those things can exacerbate uh, symptoms of mast cell activation. So we're, thank you. We're talking about overall uh, prevalence of mold toxicity. I mean, it sounds like it's hard to know if some people are testing and they're excreting that, say in the urine or something, but then other people are just too toxic and they, they're just holding on to it and they can't really excrete it. Um, how many people do you think have some degree of clinically significant mold toxicity uh, just overall in the general population, just kind of walking around into into the grocery store, if you're just seeing a group of, you know, 100 people at Trader Joe's or something, how many people have mold issues, you think? And Bartonella, um, same thing. That's a good question. I, I actually haven't looked that up to see what that looks like. But I will say, you know, roughly 60% of all of the buildings in the U.S. have some form of water damage. Um, and that's not just homes, that's, you know, schools, office buildings, um, churches, synagogues, et cetera. So um, we are being exposed. In Southern California, where I practice, um, there's a lot of mold here, not because it's a particularly wet place, but because the construction is is not well done. They throw up a building overnight and don't need to pay attention because we don't have inclement weather. So there could be a pinhole leak in the piping. There could be um, you know, just shoddy construction that's going to set that building up to have water damage. And then water damage leads to mold growth because we grow, we build with um, particle board and you know <laughs> we grow with, we build with wood that is fuel for the mold, the mold grows, and then we get sick. Now, not everybody who lives in a moldy building will be sick. We do know from Richie Shoemaker's work that there are some people who are more susceptible to mycotoxin illness than others. Um, but I don't find it that useful to test the, the genes for mold sensitivity. Um, of course, in my practice, my practice is cute. I'm sure yours is too. You know, many people in my practice, I don't know, 70% of people in my practice are mold exposed. And then in terms of Bartonella, um, gosh, I think some of the statistics are like 80% uh, or more of all domestic cats in the US have Bartonella. It's very, very high. 
Are you a so, cat person or dog person or none of the above? I'm, a do- I'm actually, I'm actually both. I, okay. I, um, I, I have a dog. I did have a cat. Um, my cat actually did have Bartonella. Um, and my husband unbeknownst, uh, to us played aggressively with her and contracted Bartonella with the cat you said, or the dog with the cat, with the cat. Okay. But then the dogs carry Lyme too. So that's, that's can. Yeah. But I don't know. It's a lot easier to get scratched by a cat. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I didn't know it was 80%. That's a lot of cats actually. It's, it's a tremendous amount of cats. Um, maybe that was the feral cat. Anyway, we, we need to look that that data point up but um i do remember having a conversation with um the the premier veterinarian who writes about bartonella in the u.s and it's a very high percentage now most cats are not symptomatic my cat was not symptomatic um but it doesn't mean that that infection can't be transmitted um and then of course bartonella can be transmitted many other different ways from ticks and fleas and other sorts of insects. So Bartonella is probably far more common than Lyme disease and gets a lot less press. Um, I feel like these are all stealth conditions, or at least from a conventional point of view, they're stealth, meaning we can't really diagnose them if we're doing that more of in a conventional way, because we don't, we're not even thinking about it, you know? Exactly. And the commercial labs are not very good. Right. So there are twenty mm, some odd species of Bartonella uh, in that we're aware of at this point, and most labs just check for Bartonella Hensley, um, and using things like Igenics testing, I find a ton of other kinds: Bartonella quintana, Vinsoni, Elizabethiae, and then some just not no name. Um, there's Galaxy Labs, uh, which is another way to uh, identify Bartonella infections. But there, it's more difficult in many cases to identify Bartonella than Lyme disease. Yeah. Just to get back to the mast cells, how do you think people can desensitize the mast cells? Work on that. Assuming you know we're trying to go on a a little bit of a hunt on, you know, what's going on, what's root cause, you know, triggering or perpetuating or mediating this. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the other lifestyle factors that have been really helpful that you've seen in, in your practice, let's say? Sure. Um, honestly, I use a lot of over-the-counter antihistamines and it's a great place to start because they're inexpensive. They're very safe yeah. for patients. Um, so there are five um, second generation over-the-counter antihistamines. And usually what I encourage my patients to do is try them all because they may find that one works great for them and others don't work well, well at all. So Claritin, Zyrtec, Allegra, Zizol, and then I'm not sure if this is available over-the-counter yet, but Clarinex, uh, which is a, a form of, of Claritin, um, is the second generation ones. And then, you know, simple Benadryl, sometimes Benadryl can really work for patients to calm down those reactions. Um, it is often sedating. So they, 
they may not be able to take it during the day, but can take it at nighttime. And then the H2 blockers. So things like Pepsid or Tagamet, Axid, those can be really helpful, particularly if they have gastrointestinal symptoms uh, and mast cells. Now, these are not uh, acid blockers in the, the sense like a proton pump inhibitor. So I make sure the patients understand that. And usually they're worried, especially if they have SIBO, I don't want to suppress my acid. It's blocking histamine uh, in the gastrointestinal system from getting to the histamine receptors. Um, so it, it shouldn't impact the acid levels uh, in the stomach at all or compromise uh, GI function. Um, so those are great places to start for things that patients can do on their own. Um, there are other supplements that can be helpful too, um, that, but it's probably best to try and find a practitioner to start working with. Thank you. And since you're a fairly experienced practitioner yourself, Dr. McCann, love if you could share a patient success story. You know, a lot of times people are coming in and, and they, they might need a, a model or at least a little bit of beacon of, of hope, you know, of someone else that has gone through this journey of, you know, mast cell activation, chronic conditions, and probably not feeling listened to or heard, right. or, you know, what, even if it's not like not diagnosed, it's hard to diagnose sometimes, but, but even just being dismissed, you know, we've had a doctor come on um, recently, Dr. Zingman, I don't know if you know Dr. Zingman, but she's a musculoskeletal specialist that was going through ortho residency, and she ended up getting di diagnosed with EDS, but only after going through 10 to 15 doctors with herself as an MD herself being wow. called a hypochondriac. Wow. So that was a journey for her. And I think just to give people hope here, um, what have you found in terms of, you know, people getting better and maybe sharing some, some of that with us, with our listeners? Sure. Um, so I have a lot of patients who, um, have gotten to the point where they're able to manage their symptoms, uh, either through diet um, I couldn't think of a specific one off the top of my head, but I have a couple of, of um, vignettes I can share. So I had one woman who probably had chronic diarrhea for 20 years, you know, and she was in her 70s. And we had been working on all sorts of things over the years. And I kept trying to help her with her diarrhea, you know, give her lots of probiotics, put her, give her antifungals. Uh, we did a parasite treatment for her. Um, I thought maybe it was bile acid diarrhea. So I put her on like um, bile acid uh, medications. And then, and then it dawned on me. Oh, Maybe you have mast cell activation. And I put her on um, two Zyrtec a day. And that actually helped. I mean, she was going, mm, you know, six, seven, eight times a day, kind of watery stool. This poor woman. That's a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. That's a lot. So twice a day seemed to help a little bit, solidified it a little bit. Three Zyrtec three times a day was like the charm. She normalized to, you know, two or three bowel movements a day. She was so happy. It was pretty impressive. That's amazing. What made you think of mast cell in that situation for her? Um, because I knew that she had some mold exposure and, you know, I had just recently learned about mast cell activation. I had tried everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Poor lady. I'm like, wait, oh, I know what it is. <laughs> And sometimes it's about perseverance, you know, sometimes it's about working with, with someone, you know, whether whoever's listening out there, you know, 
thinking of on your own finding a practitioner out there because really sometimes it's about turning over those stones you know sometimes just like playing a piano piece you have to get all the little all the measures wrong before you 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 play it correctly you know so absolutely and it's and the same goes through with like trial and error of different supplements and medications that might work for a mast cell patient unfortunately um we don't yet know at this time what's going to work for somebody so it really is a trial and error um you know personally i like zyrtec i have other patients who prefer claritin and do great with allegra or zizol um it it really is a matter of just trial and error um let's see i have another patient um, that i can share as well again an, an older woman you know and she had lyme and um, parasites and had she had a lot of hives she would get these like terrible rashes and um and we figured out the lime and the parasite stuff and um and it, you know for her it was the right combination of all of this of the medications and the supplements so she's on chromalin you know, 200 milligrams, two or three times a day. She's on ketotifen, which is another pharmaceutical for mast cell activation. She's got her Zyrtec on board and her quercetin on board. And she's on low-dose naltrexone as well. And as long as she does all of those things consistently, you know, she's um, much, much better. She also had diarrhea and the diarrhea gets better when she... Um, pays attention to her diet. And so, you know, for some people, it really is a management issue. Um, and, um, and then for some people, they can actually really uh, get things under control, and then back off on their medications and their supplements. And I have absolutely seen that. Um, particularly when we're able to identify the trigger, for example, if it is mold and they get out of the moldy building and we do the mold treatment, those mast cells can really calm down substantially. I've seen that too, but I think just like most of these things, if it's taken a long time to get there, it takes a little bit of time for the body to heal. So I think that's really important is patience is really required in spades, Absolutely. I think, with these type of issues. Yeah, I'm, I'm finding, you know, I'm doing serial mold test, mycotoxin testing with people, and it's taking 18 months, two years, kind of at a minimum to really start to see those mycotoxins go up first as we're mobilizing things and then come back down again. Um, so it, it is a journey. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yes. Well, thank you so much for this journey here today. Uh, Kelly, really appreciate you being on and sharing your expertise about mast cell and also some of the patient stories, you know, some of the, the struggles of, you know, others can, you know, hopefully be of service to those that are listening and hopefully they're feeling better as well. But we'd like to also ask you some fun questions too. Because sure. um, uh, we always ask our guests to, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing your morning routine, you know, we always know that, you know, getting a good start to the day is really great for your health and kind of gets you off on the right foot. So what's uh, Kelly's morning routine? My morning routine. Um, so I get up um, usually around 6, 6.15. Um, I sit in meditation probably only for about 10 minutes. I don't have a whole lot of time in the morning. And then I walk my dog. Um, I have a 
Beagle Golden Mix. He's getting up there in age, but uh, we we go for our walk, and I'm actually learning Spanish, so I do Duolingo while I'm walking my dog. Nice. <laughs> I've been doing Duolingo for se- almost 700 days straight. Now, How so. is that? How's that? How's that there? You know, it works. It yeah. works. It's yeah, fun. we have someone in the office doing that too. Yeah, <laughs> definitely want to learn as well. Um, we know that lifelong learning is not only good for the 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 brain you know of course you know keeps our minds active hopefully it prevents dementia you know these type of things right um but also i think it can it can really give us hope and you know give us some new perspective you know other people writing or talking on podcasts or different things what book or podcast are you enjoying the most right now and and why Let's see. So when the new Dune movie came out, I, I, I admit I'm a sci-fi. I like oh, nice. Yeah, fantasy yeah. stuff. So yeah. I, yeah. I'm reading the Dune series. I'm on book five right now, okay. which takes place like thousands of years in the future after the original. I had no idea. Um, <laughs> that's pretty cool. That's it's cool. Uh, yeah. It's definitely a different read. Um, and it enables me not to think about medicine for a few minutes in the day, which is important. Yeah. Um, although I will say probably my favorite book that I've listened to recently is called the golem and the genie, uh, genie is spelled J I N N I fabulous tale set in like the 1930s, forties in New York city about, about this Golem, which is a creature made of clay who looks like a woman and a genie and their relationship. And I just, it was awesome. It was a great cool. book. To check totally it out. It. Yeah. Um, and if you can listen to it, it's even better because the person who read the story was just phenomenal. So great. highly recommend it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and then how can listeners learn more about you and, and work with you? Okay. Um, my website and my practice is called The Spring Center. So you can Google www.thespringcenter.com. Um, I, um, I am not accepting new patients right now, but will be probably in the next couple of weeks. So if somebody is interested, please keep an eye on the website. Um, I do uh, see patients all over the country. Um so it is possible to do telemedicine with me. And then um, other things that I have on in store, I will be hosting a Health Means Summit in uh, the end of August, beginning of September on mast cell activation. And I will be interviewing probably 40 um, experts in the field of mast cell activation. And I'm really hoping to also include POTS and EDS and kind of look at the whole picture of these Pentad patients that we've been talking about. So, um, look into that. I'm very excited. It should be a phenomenal. Yeah. I don't think there's been a summit on mast cell has there No. this year. This is exciting. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely, be excited to uh, listen to that. And yeah, thank you so much, Dr. McCann, for coming on today. And for our listeners, thank you so much. And uh, please leave some messages in our, our chat box if you have any questions for Dr. McCann or just any kind of comments about this episode. You know, I think this has been really helpful. We have so many people with mast cell, so many people with symptoms of mast cell probably that are not even knowing that that's often what it is. So, uh, so thank you so much. 
You're welcome. Thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate spending the time with you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episodes and conversations. And thank you so much again for being with us.